I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. In episode 54, we'll talk about what I think everybody's talking about, Wally the support alligator, who pays for the green transition, whether U.S. manufacturing is back. Hashtag no. <laughs> not really. And of course, Paris's bed bugs. Later, we'll talk about our Kaiten, head of external relations of the WTO, that's the World Trade Organization, about how the organization can change the narrative around trade, and of course, his favorite fast food. And we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback, sneak in a news roundup, and a few jokes. So let's get into it before there's more dad jokes on the way. Well, everybody, welcome to episode 54. Listeners will be happy to know that uh, 54 is the atomic number of Xenon, a character famous from the 90s sitcom series. Also a woman. Yeah. That's a Xena joke. I, I, she I know. was a warrior princess. This one I know about. It's a dense, colorless, odorless, noble gas found on the Earth's atmosphere in trace amounts. I don't know why that's in there, but we're just going to run with it. It's also the iconic Rubik's Cube. Toy has 54 squares that are also colored. Mm. You'll be happy to know. The international country code for Argentina is 54. It's the country where Madonna is famously from. Yeah, true. Evita? I, I don't, <laughs> that was an Evita joke. I did not get that. Uh, there are 54 named countries in Africa. Surprising for some people who think Africa is a country. It's not. And 54 is the age that I turned in 2022. Anybody who's remotely good at math can now calculate your age. 55. Like the Sammy Hagar song. I can't try it. 55. Smash that subscribe button. Or don't smash it, just subscribe before you do anything violent. Uh, catch our next episodes coming out. Better yet, you can also share it with a friend or stranger. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, so subscribe to all of them, please. And Wait, do you leave mean any really anywhere? Do leave a review because they do make a difference. Every comment, email, listener question does wonders for our morale. Anyway, so we just gotta we're gonna run through some quick news items before we get to the real news items. Yeah. First one up, Rob will be happy to know that Blancpain sales have gone to the moon. Most people don't know that's a watch brand. They do know now because they listened to last week's episodes. They will know about the Swatch and Blancpain collaboration. Now they also know that sales have gone up because of this collaboration, maybe because we mentioned it on the podcast. But do they use sustainable plastic for the watches? When are you going to get yours? Actually, I left my watch at the other house. Your today. chateau? I need, to, I need to acquire a watch. Let's just go on down to the Swatch store. Because Blancpain is actually going to start paying me at this point for all the free promotional they get. You know what I'm not happy about? No. The fact that you and one of our multiple time guests had a selfie. People who follow us on LinkedIn will know that Rob and Lars Carlson actually met. It might be the TS spinoff that we didn't know we needed. And I'm not jealous at all because I wasn't there. Lars from Amerisk. He's pretty cool. He had a really cool suede jacket. Cool jacket bars. But we're testing him to see if he's actually listening. Shout out to <laughs> Lars. And you guys met in Bonn, Germany. Yeah. Um, it seems like such a chill place. DHL's headquarters is there. Okay. It's apparently logistics point. So you, if you have a package, even for UPS in Europe, it might have landed in Bonn first. Okay. That's, I don't know. That's... Anyway, I wanted to get back to the thing. So first of all, yeah, it's been a big week. I know everybody's maybe a little panicked, very emotional. The announcement of Jada Pinkett Smith that she's been separated from Will Smith probably led a lot of people to think, could something similar be happening with you and me, Artie? Are we secretly separated? I just want to say to everybody, no, we would tell you. The way you're looking at me, I don't feel confident. I think men everywhere are looking forward to the possibility that they too can one day be 
the person who smacks another man on live TV. But if you're separated, do you smack somebody? If you're separated? I don't know. I think it's important that we're talking about it, but I feel like this would take another podcast. Yeah. We're just going to jump right into the important news stories this episode. First one up is the green transition. The question is, will certain people be left out and what do we do about it? Last episode, we talked about COP28 and the EU CBAM beginning to come online. And while most people see the need for countries to rush towards this green transition, one thing that is often overlooked are the trade-offs that are involved to make that a reality. The IMF calculated that the green transition should only involve or quote-unquote reallocation of 1% of unemployment in advanced economies over the next decade or 2.5% in emerging economies. The good news is that those reallocated green jobs pay much more than the average quote-unquote brown job. It should encourage people to switch unless you really love clean coal or can't quote-unquote reallocate yourself to a city. Geography and levels of retraining pose particular problems for for things like this. Green jobs are disproportionately found in capital regions, places like New York, not Jersey, while brown jobs are disproportionately found in regions with lower GDP per capita and levels of retraining. Whether that's you're talking about energy, cars, or steel, these new production processes are less labor-intensive. It's good for consumers because this should mean lower prices, but not so great for workers. The question becomes, how do countries plan for or address these dislocations in labor markets? The UK, the US, and, the, and Germany offer differing um, approaches for offsetting the, the cost to workers. The UK in Port Talbot in Wales, they have given 500 million to Tata Group to secure the future of the plant by replacing blast furnaces with an electric furnace. That's great for the environment. The problem is that it might lead to a loss of 3,000 jobs, up to potentially 10 or 11K of jobs downstream. That means you'll have less people spending at at the local shops and things like this. In the US, they're trying to offset this by incentivizing companies to invest in these green energy jobs in former coal mining communities. Problem is that most of these jobs tend to be, for example, electric vehicle plants tend to be in southern states, which have lower labor standards and unionization rates in general. So that's great for the companies and the environment, but less great for labor in general. The largest union in Germany, they have bargained for a four-day work week rather than a five-day work week to offset the potential loss in employment numbers. Countries are still sort of experimenting with different approaches to finding a solution. Green transition is great, but what do we do about workers and making sure that you don't get a a pissed-off electorate later on? This lines up with what we've been saying on the podcast since 2020. We've argued that most people blame trade when they should be blaming poor domestic politics. What I thought was interesting is the geographic distribution of brown versus green jobs. The green jobs are more city jobs. They're higher educated jobs. Their jobs also work with people who are involved more in lifelong learning. The brown jobs typically in a rural area, typically doesn't necessarily have the flexibility. They can't reallocate themselves. Exactly. This will be a test for domestic policy. And the, the, the test is coming quite fast. The Financial Times says we could be getting to a point where popular push back against the green transition. Green transition means better jobs, more jobs, cool jobs, sexy jobs. But what we do see is a pushback. And I, I saw a big article in the Wall Street Journal talking about Exxon. CEO of Exxon basically bet, you guessed it, oil. Shocker. And he was right. They made a ton of money. Now they're acquiring a fracking firm. Drill Baby Drill is now echoing a lot. That's what's happening also elsewhere. Where the Germans were reopening coal plants when Ukraine happened. It's actually a huge issue. And carbon prices are now affecting a lot of the world's trade. So it's quite fast. If countries haven't learned their lesson from 
the last almost 10 years, we're in for trouble. They have seen what a pushback like that leads to in terms of type of leaders you elect, type of governments that are in place, type of policies that follow on from those. It's important that they take those lessons to heart. If they want to avoid a backlash to a green transition, right or not, it's important that they incorporate those into whatever solutions. They come. Uh, anyway, so we talked about American manufacturing. That's a good segue into the, the next bit we wanted to talk about, and that is the fact that American manufacturing is apparently back. For many, the pandemic crystallized this fragility of the globalized supply chain. It spurred many companies to accelerate nearshoring plans. High-profile shipping blockages, which we talked about ad nauseum in places like Suez and Panama Canals, illustrated the risks of relying on cheap production in Latin America and Asia. This at the time that advances automation and, and rising freight costs made it a bit more economically attractive to do things in Mexico, the U.S., and Canada, places which are literally next door. That has led to a boom time for, for little-known companies that are building the different factories, the data centers, the warehouses that are fueling this nearshoring move. So there's demand for construction from different industries, whether that's life sciences, hospitals, technology, even everybody's favorite word of 2023, artificial intelligence. It remains to be seen if this is a short-term trend and we return to this orthodoxy of trade being open to everybody and locating manufacturing hubs in the lowest cost destination, just getting there on time, so to speak. We have to ask ourselves, will this come in spite of uh, different laws passed by the Biden administration that together offer billions of subsidies, tax credits, and other incentives to foster this sort of local manufacturing, whether that's in semiconductors or electric vehicles? The measurable impact on U.S. manufacturing has been light so far. Is the U.S. producing more? Is it producing more in the strategic area that should be or that we're trying to promote. But in any case, articles said that they're looking at a leading indicator, which is construction. What they're measuring now isn't necessarily production. It isn't necessarily manufacturing. It's literally guys who are building factories. So that's a leading indicator. Let's see if it actually comes true. I think we all have big reservations about whether these kinds of incentives can create or promote and build manufacturing industries. We've listened to podcasts and read analysts about the Korean examples. We've seen discussions of how the Chinese did it. Massive concentrations of subsidies in the battery industry seems to have done something. But normally, these things are very expensive. We have talked about in prior podcasts that the, the direction of trade is changing. China is now the U.S.'s third largest trading partner behind Mexico and Canada. They were always all up there, but it has reduced. The one thing that we have to note, though, is a lot of the trade with, let's say, Malaysia, Vietnam, and so on, are Chinese companies or companies using Chinese components. I heard it at this conference where I saw Lars last week. There's a lot of China plus one planning. China's still huge. We can't get away. They're still so competitive, so important. The China plus one strategy means we've got to have China and Malaysia or China and Mexico. It doesn't usually mean China plus New Jersey or China plus Wisconsin. So there's apparently a fertilizer shortage, which is spreading across the continent of Africa. Tell us about that. We talked about it right after the Ukrainian invasion, that there would be spikes in prices and potentially a shortage of fertilizer. The idea then was that shortage in fertilizer will lead to lower yield, and potentially less food production. This was the transmission belt. What Peter S. Goodman, a guest that we had on some time ago, has found is that's indeed happening. There's not shortages right now, as I understand it, of fertilizer. What there is much higher prices. And what that has meant is the average producer in Africa is not using as much or not using fertilizer at all. In addition, when they experience the lower yields, inflation has also pushed up food prices. So they're in a sandwich between higher food prices and lower production, lower yield. The, so the article was going through discussions with a number of producers uh, of this and looking at 
global prices in these areas. The people that he, he interviewed were consuming less protein because of the lower income, because of higher prices. It was really having an effect on quality of life and on their nutrition. So that potentially a very profound effect. I don't know when it is we're going to actually be able to see some statistics on production. I, he also mentioned that some analysts are saying if folks move from phosphate-based fertilizer from Morocco or Ukraine to something that's organic, which I guess is poopoo, then this could potentially be a good transition. They, they will be feeding the soil. But this is years of transition, and government budgets in Africa are under intense pressure. We haven't had any collapses. We've had a lot of people signing IMF agreements, but we know their debt service is much higher. So any subsidies that were going to this area have been massively reduced. I think it's something we really have to keep an eye on. I'm being facetious here. We're more concerned with our bikes arriving on time and less concerned with fertilizer and a continent which doesn't have a tangible effect necessarily on our day-to-day life, right? But it doesn't change the fact that there are countries or areas of the world which are still feeling the tail whip effects of the supply chain crisis. And it's just adding on to cascading effects. It's still important to realize that these things do have effects. It's not just us, but that's the U.S. or, or Western Europe or Switzerland. We're feeling them. No, absolutely right. The U.S. and other announced programs to try to take care of these fertilizer issue by providing subsidies. And we know there's a big giant sucking sound to Ukraine. We know there's also a lot of focus now in the Middle East, or there will be. We know that there's a lot of discussion of green transition. So whatever money we had to address something like this is going to be potentially in short supply. And I think Africa probably low on people's priority list. You know, it's not in short supply. Yeah, watches. I think you're really putting the cursor in the right place. That's important. really important. <laughs> People are like, I couldn't use fertilizer. I couldn't grow enough food. I don't have enough cash. So I'm therefore eating less protein. And <laughs> you're thinking, you don't have to go for the highest level of watch. Yeah, Tissot is fine. Yeah. Bernard Kuyten is a former diplomat, trade negotiator, and speaker on trade and WTO matters. He's currently the head of external relations at the World Trade Organization, where he oversees the organization's dealings with the private sector, civil society, parliamentarians, and other intergovernmental organizations. My old job. He joined the WTO at the end of 99, taking responsibility for civil society relations. From 1990 to 1999, he represented both the Netherlands and the European Union on a number of trade files, including shipbuilding, steel, and services trade. He specialized in financial, telecommunication, and audiovisual services when working for the European Commission. The year before joining WTO, Bernard was the chair of the WTO Working Party for State Trading Enterprises. It's not really a party, though. Hashtag feel the yeah, burn. It sounds fun, but it, maybe it's not as fun as it sounds. He's a member and former chair of the International Geneva Committee of the Swiss Network of International Studies, a very difficult thing to pronounce, as well as an advisory board member of the Model WTO at the University of St. Gallen. Did I mention hashtag feel the burn? You did. You did. Because I'm feeling it. So, Bernard, thanks for joining us on the podcast. As a longtime listener, I'm sure you know how this goes. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? How did you end up working in the trade space? Let me first thank you for inviting me. I was totally surprised because why would you want to have me on your show? But there I am. First thing, everybody calls me Bernie. Bernard is the name that my mother gave me, and she still uses it when she's angry. But everybody else (laughs) since about 25 years called me Bernie, so please do that. And trade, why trade? I studied international economics, and I started applying for jobs a long time ago. And I remember I had an interview at the Ministry of Economic Affairs in the Netherlands, and they asked me, so what do you know about trade? And I said, absolutely nothing. 
because in my studies there wasn't anyone talking teaching on trade so I coincidentally got into it but I think anybody working in the world of trade will tell you that once you get hooked onto it or once you get into that kind of exercise with trade and trade negotiations you become a geek and I'm the perfect example of it for more than 30 years and my career started in the Netherlands and I moved to Brussels and then to Geneva but I've always worked in the world of trade. Fantastic. And so you've been doing this for the past 30 years or so, roughly. Let's be gentle. <laughs> How have the... <laughs> yeah, I'm an old guy. You can say that. <laughs> Your words, not mine. <laughs> so if yes. we're just looking at the last five years, whether that's the COVID pandemic, trade being branded as quote-unquote bad by people who won't be named, and issues at the WTO, Russia's invasion, subsidies, things like that. Has that tri- changed your views on how trade or trade policy is used? And if so, how? It hasn't really changed my views, to be honest. What I've seen mostly is that governments have changed their views on what the role of trade should be or could be. When I started, trade was mostly seen as an instrument or a tool, a positive thing. And from time to time, it was used in a protectionist way. But overall, it was part of economic planning. And it was something positive, something that needed to be explored, needed to be negotiated. WTO was established. In the last five years, and this was before the number of crises and the ongoing crisis that hit the world, trade was suddenly seen as, and it's not my words, but as a kind of instrument of weaponization. Trade was really looked at something you could use to get something else accomplished. And of course... From a perspective of my organization, the WTO, that is really something we weren't prepared for. The idea would be you use that instrument to support your economic ambitions and you try to link it to new challenges. But I think generally speaking, people started using trade in a completely different way. And that has a different reason, nothing to do with trade as such. It's the lack of trust. Internationally, there's an absolute absence of trust among foes, even friends. Overall, it's not so much the view that has changed, it's more the use of trade. Let me ask you a question about that. Are we not making the case for trade? Is it just that we haven't talked about the benefits of trade enough? You've been with the European Union, you've been with the Dutch government. What could they have done differently or what should we do differently to make the case? I think for a very long time, trade was taken for granted by governments, by international organizations, by industry and by people in general. You just... You expected a product or a service to be available for a reasonable price, and you would move on. And the moment people started relating trade to other areas than purely economic ones, think of the environment, think of labor, think of human rights, suddenly there was this questioning, what does this actually mean? What is trade doing? And while you try to to catch up in that debate, in that narrative, the people out there, outside of the world that we work in, they actually come up with the things they feel, they sense, and they are worried about. And we should listen to them. Whether or not you can build that into a narrative as a representative of an organization like WTO is a completely different question, because sometimes you have to say, well, it doesn't work like that. Sometimes you have to say, well, the opponent or the counterpart is doing something you don't like, that we don't like but they're doing it anyway. So what you try to do is to explain trade in the simplest way possible. But if you then go into policy and problems and and exercises of negotiations, it becomes way more complicated because it isn't as straightforward as a product moves from A to B or a service is delivered from A to B. There are all sorts of things in between. And that's where we get in. I think we did a reasonable good job, but it's not perfect. But again, what happened in the last five years... I don't think it has anything to do with 
the wrong narrative or the the absence of a certain narrative. It's simply something that we were not in control of. Look at climate, for example, or look at geopolitical crisis. In my view, those have nothing to do with trade. And then trying to jump onto it because people think it is exceptionally difficult. We're trying hard. Sometimes it works. Over a 20-year period, I think it worked. In the last five years, we probably have a job to do. You, you touched on an interesting point with your last sentence there. Trade is often linked with environmental issues, with labor rights issues, especially in the last 20 years or so. We have CBAM and things like this coming into effect. I, I imagine that makes your job harder as head of external relations, but how do you navigate something like that? Is this something that people in your position or people in trade in general are going to have to make their peace with, that these things will go hand in hand, or are we still trying to um, separate the two? So say, hey, trade is doing one thing, the environment is another. They are linked somehow, but uh, we can't package in those two different discussions. I think the most important thing that you try to do when it comes to narrative is try to identify where there's overlap or where there's potential reinforcement. If you go back in time, there was definitely what you just said. You separate the trade discussion from labor rights discussion or the environmental discussion or human rights discussion. Whereas I think in the last few years, more than ever, people are also looking at, okay, is there an overlap? Is there a linkage? Is there a relationship? And what can you do? What kind of system do you have to actually support it? These could be labor rights. These could be human rights. This could be climate change. That debate is happening right now, and it was actually on a very good track, but because of geopolitical tensions, it has somewhat moved to the back. From our side, and this is from the Director General come down, what we say is we have a system. You may say some of it is part of the problems we have or an origin of the problems we have. could also be part of the solutions. Can you find ways in where the trading system or trade as such can be helpful or in support? Now, That is an exercise that's not going to happen overnight. And as I said, because of the current crisis that we face, it become more difficult. Because for that discussion to take place, you have everybody at the table. Your friends and your foes, your supporters and your opponents. You can't do it with one, you have to do it with both. But the very important thing is, instead of seeing it as separate worlds, is looking at where the overlap and the connection is. You're an ex-negotiator, and negotiators typically have wanted to get away from these issues. They want to talk about market access. They don't want to have to talk about mm-hmm. labor or environment because it uh, muddies a little bit the waters. So, Great guitarist. <laughs> it muddies the waters like muddy waters. Do you think that human element is still a factor? People tell us that agreements have been closed at WTO because of human factor. So do you think there's a human factor? The folks that are literally in Geneva in WTO building have to evolve their thinking or is that now taken over by AI or the machines? I always believed and I still believe that there's a human element to any kind of negotiation or exchange. And even what we're doing right now, if you would do it in person, it's already different. Right now we're doing it remote. But if you do it in person, it's already different. So if you negotiate, you need to sometimes sit together. You need to be able to look each other in the eyes. When I was a negotiator, and that comes back to the point on trust, people could have very different views and opinions, but there was this trust that we're all trying to get something and get somewhere. So after a day or a night of having negotiations, you would end up in the bar having a drink or having dinner together. That may be missing, and that's not because of COVID. That's not because of the pandemic and the fact that we are used to doing things virtual. It has to do with this dedication to trying to accomplish something. And this may sound... (laughs) naive or childish that's not what i mean it's literally 
If you want to accomplish something, you're going to have to sit down and you're going to have to talk to one another, look each other in the eyes, literally sit down, come back and take your time for it. So yes, the human element is very important. Now, there may be some young people, younger than me, which is not that difficult, that will say, oh, that's old fashioned. No, it's not. Because at the end, you negotiate something. You're talking about policies that affect people, which is also something that brings that human element. What you do is actually affecting people on the ground. So yes, human element, very important. As as a middle manager, I really appreciate that. I I do believe that AI may replace me someday. but uh, Not today, Satan. We need to retain that human element. You mentioned the human element. I spent most of my working career at the UN, so almost a decade. Mm -hmm. And in that time, I noticed that there are certain negotiators who tend to be more human in the way they talk to you. So some people tend to touch your hand or just grab you. And I want to know, so as somebody who's more seasoned in in, in this art, is that sort of a way for them to get you to agree to whatever they're saying just because you want them to stop holding your hand or arm (laughs) or touching your shoulder ever so gently? Taking people by the hand, yes. Sitting down with people, yes. The one who taught me most of my negotiating, I don't have the skills anymore because I'm not a negotiator anymore, but the one who taught me a lot was a former European Commission official, Carl Falkenberg. He was one of the best negotiators I've ever met, and he learned it from one of the best negotiators he ever met. And he always said, if you have a tough evening ahead, what you do, you literally say to people, why don't you bring the wine, I'll bring some food, and then we start going. And again, it's this human element of bringing people together. So I do believe in taking people by the hand. Yes, you can't just sit there in front of each other. It's shockingly disarming. It does work. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) I guess that leads me to one more question. We're going to get to the question about kebab, obviously, because that's a key one. But (laughs) you do civil society, engagement of private sector, and so on. And that's also changed a lot over time. I heard last week when I was at a conference in Bonn that the private sector is not as engaged, at least in some folks' view, that the big companies are not as engaged as they were. And it's really important the private sector and government and the secretariat get together because the, tr- the challenges are huge. Have you found that there's a different or less engagement from the private sector? We've had periods of time when the private sector was very interested. There have been periods of time when they were not interested. The issue with the private sector is they're impatient, and I can understand why they're impatient. They want things now. They want things tomorrow, but they don't want things in a week from now or a year from now. So whenever you meet with the private sector and you tell them, this is an agreement that's being negotiated, we may have it two years from now, they'll look at you like, what? That's too late. No, it's not too late because it's binding. Once it's there, it doesn't go away. So you do it step by step. You need patience. With the private sector... It depends very much on what's on the table and what's being negotiated. I would argue that right now there's a lot of interest from the private sector. It depends a little bit the sort of private sector you're talking about. Maybe the traditional ones are less interested. But there's a lot of new sectors and new economies where you do have a lot of interest, partially because we don't have rules on that. The private sector, they will tell you, I tried to move my product from A to B and crossing a border, and I ran into these issues. What are you doing about it? And that turns out to be something completely different from what you hear in negotiations. So the private sector is definitely interested, maybe even more these times than before, because trade, come back to the original thing, is used as a tool, and mostly in a way negative tool these days, to accomplish things. 
For us, the problem is to keep these people, grab their interest and keep them close to you. Because again, the patience comes in. Why is there no agreement yet on electronic commerce? Well, because you need to negotiate with 164 member states. That takes time. Yeah, me and Rob can't agree on what we're going to have for dinner later. And we're just two of us. <laughs> like I'm, he, I'm a five guys guy and he's Domino's. I'm glad we've already agreed the principle we're going to be eating together. I mean, I thought that what <laughs> I thought that was in brackets. You know, this would have been this would have been the advantage if you would have if we would have been doing this in person, the three of us together. We could have said like, "Hey, let's go out for a drink yep. and some." Yep. I'm far. But which off. bar? <laughs> You're now living in Switzerland. You've moved around. You're in Brussels. What have you learned about your home country from being an expat? What have you seen from abroad that you didn't see when you were there? The other thing I learned very important. Not all Dutch are cheap. <laughs> Their reputation of being cheap. Not all Dutch are... Now you're probably going to give me 10 names of people that are Dutch. Or I never paid for a drink. I run into Dutch people that pay for drinks. Now there's a reason for that. They pay for my drinks. So I'm cheap. Fair enough. But seriously, they're not as cheap as everybody seems I, to think. I, they are tall. I, I, dis- I discovered that that was a thing only when I moved to, to Geneva. So going Dutch was an expression which I hear a lot moving here but I can't tell you if they're particularly cheap or not in general but that's Dutch honesty too don't forget going Dutch also means I don't want one person to end up with the whole bill let's go Dutch let's be fair and of course what the Dutch then do they double their drinks and then they have an equal share like oh, let's do 50-50 wait a minute you had two bottles so more importantly on a scale of zero to say Johan Cruyff how accurate a portrayal of a Dutch person was Goldmember and Austin Powers Goldmember? Probably happy to know that that was the second Austin Powers. That was the sequel. I didn't, wa- the I didn't watch one. it. I hate to admit that I saw both of them. <laughs> if that will be a portrayal of, of a Dutch person, I'm going to change my passport for sure. Because when, I, when I think of Dutch, I think or Eric Ten Hag or Goldmember. He loves gold. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to say that even though I am Dutch, I don't necessarily associate with either of them, but certainly not with Goldmember. What's his name? Mike Myers likes to portray certain nationalities in a, in a ridiculous way. What was the other guy? Fat Bastard. Scottish. Fat Scottish. Babies. Babies. his stomach. That made Goldmember look like a very nice, normal that, guy. That is right? true, actually. True. Very diplomatic of you. So yeah. we're going to move on. We're going to move on. It's a serious... It's, we're journalists. You know that the great island of Staten, which is, I think, in New Jersey is named after the first permanent European settlement by the Dutch in the 1600s, was it? That's true. So as a Dutchman, how often do you go back to visit this monument, this old stomping grounds? Not as, not as often as I would like to. First and foremost, listen, we used to own this. <laughs> this used to be our ground. Cornelius yeah. Vanderbilt, Dutch. And, yeah. There's two things that I discovered. I was taken to New York for the first time by a New Yorker, a very close friend of mine, and he showed me a few things. One of the things he showed me was speakeasy bars which, of course, were way back in time, and at a time when these things were not possible, but they look like Dutch brown bars. Oh, really? And if there's one thing, by the way, to come back to your question, what do you notice? There are no such bars to be found anywhere in the world as the one you find in the cities in the Netherlands, except for New York. You have bars that are literally like the brown bars in the Netherlands, the speakeasy ones. And the other great thing about going back to the 1600s this is one of the stories, and it's still not confirmed completely true, but the New York Yankees. Do you know where the name Yankees comes from? Let me from? guess, it's Dutch. <laughs> yes, it's two Dutch names, Jan and Kees. 
Now, of course, this is a story, and there are other stories about the origins of the name of the New York Yankees. Okay. Apparently, there's an origin yes. there, but I've seen so many things originating from the Dutch language or from the Dutch there. Brooklyn. That like, wow. So, Staten Island. Har- Harlem. Yeah, well, the Philadelphia Stroopwafels. The Stroopwafels. They're one of my favorite teams. So the moral of the story is that they should have kept the name New Amsterdam. They should have never sold the place. Can you imagine? That would still be Dutch territory. Thank you, Peter Stuyvesant. <laughs> but also, you'll, you'll notice Bernie did not say he's ever been to Staten Island. And I think we have to surmise he, the He said not no. as often as he should be. It's a non-zero number, potentially. We don't know. We can't pin him down on this one. He's a spokesman. We can't pin him down no. on stuff like okay, this. More importantly, we've heard that a Dutch-Irish sandwich is a staple sort of delicacy during tax season in Holland. Can you comment? When I was reading a Dutch-Irish sandwich, the first thing that comes to mind is, wait a minute, two of the worst cuisine in the world, <laughs> they joined together to make a sandwich? That must be revolting, horrible. They Each call it going Dutch. To create. They're taking the going Dutch a little <laughs> further than you and I would do that when we would be having drinks or dinner. Sorry, Ireland. We, as I said, we're serious journalists. It's more of a quantitative podcast in many ways. As a last question, as an expat living in Geneva, you know the national food here in the canton of Geneva and the Republic of Geneva is kebab. What is your favorite kebab in Geneva? And if you need a hint, it's Parfum de Beirut. I'm not an expert. I'm a local here. I live like a local. I get annoyed when my neighbors make noise after 10 o'clock in the the evening. I hate it when a train is delayed. I'm not an expert. I'm a local. So I don't eat kebab here. What I do eat here is Filet de perche and cheese fondue. I'm a real local. I'm Swiss. Listen, you, I think you're trying too hard now, okay? okay you j- just admit it, kebab is king. I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to find out recommendations. We'll not have to do a trade-splaining uh, tasting tour. Yeah, we're going to get everybody together. That's what we're going to do. Do a trade-splaining from a kebab place. That would be, be fantastic. And you get people like, pulling on that kebab. Really? <laughs> You have them complaining about how the price of their lettuce went up. Like you have a hamburger index? Is there a kebab index? You're a fountain of ideas. This is fantastic. I'm writing all these things down so that we can monetize them somehow. I see. You're actually like a Dutch person in a bar, drinking on others and then say, going Dutch. Exactly. Bernie, thanks for for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure uh, talking about all things trade, the WTO, and most importantly, going Dutch. We're, mm-hmm. we're glad to have you on and hope to have you on again in the future. Thank you very much for having me. I hope I wasn't too Dutch. I know that uh, one person said, if you're too Dutch, you can speak Dutch in five different languages. <laughs> so I can actually try to do the Dutch accent in English. And there are very many people in the Netherlands that speak like this. I've learned like over a, the years. Thank you very like much. It's like I'm listening to a Manchester United press conference. <laughs> 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 So, Artie, that brings us to our next segment. This is where we bring in our correspondent, Michelle, to talk about the vibe shift. So, Michelle, is globalization finally dead? This particular one isn't about globalization, but Rob, imagine getting a reservation at Noma. Okay, sounds expensive. It's supposed to be the best restaurant in the world. And then imagine booking for a larger group than what we needed to. Thinking, who wouldn't want to go to Noma, right? It's the best restaurant in the world. It turns out that every single friend we had, nobody really wanted to go. That's including you guys. I was busy that night. I was also busy having a kid. Not personally, but, you know. You you know the guy who did. The moral support. I know the person who did. And it seems Noma doesn't really want to have babies there. No. Hmm. Because babies can't eat tree bark. (laughs) (laughs) 
Unbelievable. I can't believe babies can't eat tweet bark. Um, so with the reservation date looming and too many empty seats, I did something I never thought I'd do. I turned to Reddit's. This is getting weird. There's a whole subreddit that's about getting reservations in different restaurants in Copenhagen. Noma, The Alchemist, all those kinds of places. You just have to write a message there saying how many reservations you have, and then people will get back to you. What I got was two tech bros from the heart of Copenhagen, which I thought wouldn't show up because they already live there, so they could go to any other reservation. Two couples on their honeymoon, which is super awkward. I don't want to have dinner with two people on their honeymoon. And then some random... Euro trippers. After so much thought, we went with two solo diners, both from New York. I think this is a great opportunity to network. The night was really good. I think we confused the people at Noma. They've Googled you before and they're ready to welcome you in the language that you prefer and they assume so many things about you. And they didn't really assume that we were going to be a table of people from Reddit. They, they, they Googled trades planning before you showed up? No, but they Googled me and they Googled my friend who had so, the reservation. So obviously trades planning came up. So I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure we got a couple of listens from Noma. <laughs> and did you have to like grab a pizza afterwards because it's like really small cuisine no, on really big like plates? No, it was like 14 small. courses. It was great. Okay. But small servings of tree bark. Yeah. The bigger the plate, the smaller We didn't the get any tree bark. We got a lot of mold. Which is delicious <laughs> this People time like of year. It, it actually tastes like nothing, which I thought was underwhelming for mold. Probably it's good for your internal flora. I don't know. Thanks, Dr. Phil. <laughs> I'm not a doctor, but I do watch a lot of TikTok. Anyway, that leaves me wondering why nobody wants to go to the world's best restaurant except people on Reddit. I feel like that was like a globalization situation, that whole table. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's not that. It's not that. It's Although not you had that. An open Noma seat. and Reddit are keeping it alive. Thank you very much, Michelle, for this peek into globalization via courses at Noma. Via Reddit. So that brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. Above all, we're journalists. We set ourselves very high standards. So I did want to bring you in, Michelle. I'm not sure why, but you've been out fact-checking my news items. We'd like to make a slight correction here. Yeah. The other day, I was walking around Jardin Anglais, and I realized that you lied in one of your news pieces, Rob. There is no benches there now, based on my news item. It turns out the benches are still there. So those of you who live in the area, the flower clock, the statue of those dudes, it's all still there and you can still still sit on a bench. Yep. So we do have some news items that may or may not be true. And Michelle will be checking these over the next few weeks. The first is about Walt, the emotional support alligator that uh, was not permitted to go to a Philadelphia Phillies game. And I think we all, you know, this is this is something we really are concerned about. Wally could not get into the game. Hashtag justice for Wally. Justice for Wally. What I really enjoyed about the story was that he's gone to other baseball games and that he's been a really important part of this person's life. So I would say if you're a listener, please talk to your local politician, talk to people you know, get the word out. Wally needs to go to the Philadelphia Phillies. We got another story that's really blown up here in Europe. Bed bugs have been attacking France, but also bed bug hysteria have been attacking France ahead of the Olympics. We have seen stories of people not sitting on trains, not sitting on planes. Bed bugs are in train, bed bugs are in airplanes, that bed bugs are in libraries, that basically they're everywhere. 
And also the articles talk about bed bug super spreaders. I think this is just an excuse to get people not to go to France, which I don't think you needed many excuses to begin with. I haven't been to Paris for a while, but apparently it's still completely and utterly overrun. Yeah, I think Geneva should just build a wall. <laughs> Maybe the bed bugs won't <laughs> climb over it. I don't, I don't know exactly how you'd have to build that wall. I was also wanted to mention that the stories were really reassuring because they said bed bugs are actually not dangerous. They don't carry disease and so on. They're actually fine. So uh, it's your way. It's your way. You know who says that? People who haven't had bed bugs. <laughs> exactly. That's so probably nasty. people sleeping on silk sheets right now. I mean, even when they, you know, like somebody puts a piece of furniture out on the street here, if it has bed bugs, they have to put a huge plastic thing around big bed bug. People do not get anywhere near it. That's your shirt. If you have bed bugs, terrible. It's pretty nasty. Build a plastic wall. <laughs> Build a wall. I mean, it's going to have to be kind of quite a weird wall because they can kind of crawl up stuff. Mm-hmm. Not if it's a bathtub. So if you do a bathtub wall, it's fine. Like ah, a tile wall. Like a huge tile wall around yeah. Geneva. Very good. I think you also would need to build it around every suitcase comes into Geneva. We have the solution there. Or yep. just don't go to France. Big, beautiful wall. Don't go to France. Could go be the other solution. Place. Yep. More importantly. This fellow, John Lennon, had uh, a I, watch. This watch was stolen. And recently it's been found. And I think that's a non-event. Why would anybody care about a watch? Because it's John Lennon's watch. What was it, like a Timex? Yeah, it was a Timex if it was made by two gentlemen known as Patek and Philippe. Oh, those guys. It was pretty cool. It could tell you the time, the date, the month, and the year for the next 200 years. So it's probably still ticking. It's called a perpetual calendar, which is an oxymoron because technically it's not forever, but it's worth a whole lot, like millions. So this must be a real relief to uh, John Lennon fans who are wondering where that watch was. You know who's not happy? Paul McCartney fans, because now John (laughs) Lennon's back in the news. (laughs) Because And you know whose fault it is? Yoko Ono's. Yeah, always. We always have to come back to that. That's such a boomer joke. Even millennials won't get that. That wraps up episode 54, brought to you by The Green Transition, manufacturing that's not really returning to the U.S., the global table sitting at Noma and everybody's favorite, Wally the Alligator. We also want to thank uh, Bernard Kitan of the WTO for talking to us about trade policy, WTO, good cafeteria, I might add, and how they communicate during these uncertain times. And kebab, especially kebab. We also want to thank our executive producers, Michelle Ogina and Christy Bagsich, for highlighting the vibe shift as well as helping produce this and every TS episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. Where can you find it, though? Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Anywhere you get your podcast. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Read all of them. Follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining. Or email us your questions, comments, the old-fashioned way at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks. (laughs) 